I went through a period in my career where I was very anti-metal queen. I didn't even really want to play the song. You know, you're one of the few people that has asked me that question. Um, and what I can tell you is record company politics. For the first few songs, we were dodging giant two-liter beer bottles that were <laughs> flying on stage. So it was, was quite harrowing. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Vintage Rock Pod. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks as always for hitting play. Now this episode is a Canadian affair. My main interview guest is one of the few successful hard rock metal female singers from the 80s, Lee Aaron. She went multi-platinum in her home country of Canada with hit records in Europe as well. And she'll tell us openly about her career, things like falling out of love with her big hits, gruelling tours, fearing for her voice after suffering with pneumonia, bankruptcy, her foray into the jazz world and plans for next year too. It's well worth a listen. As always, we've got a top five too, so if you're not overly familiar with their excellent back catalogue, I'll give you my top five Lee Aaron songs as well. And because we've got Lee on the show, this week's quiz is all about Canadian rock. And taking part is, well, an expert, editor-in-chief of Canadian musician magazine, Mike Rain. So loads to keep you entertained as always. A quick shout out as well, just to say, make sure you've signed up to become a VRP VIP. Get online quickly to vintagerockpod.com and sign up completely free to become one of our VRP VIPs. This gives you the chance to find out first who'll be on future episodes. I'll give you a chance to ask future guests a question and chances to win goodies too. Get yourselves to vintagerockpod.com and sign up straight away. And so, with no further ado, it's time to hear from this week's wonderful guest. And now I'm delighted to be joined by the sword-wielding goddess, the metal queen, in fact, a singer, musician, songwriter and producer, a lady of many talents. Please welcome to Vintage Rock Pod, Lee Aaron. Hello, hello. It's nice to be here with you today. It's lovely to speak with you, Lee, all the way from Canada to the highlands of Scotland. This is the wonders of modern technology. Oh, it's oh, okay. So you're filming from Scotland. I didn't know that. Wow, that's that's wonderful. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay, <laughs> lovely. So you're obviously known for your hard rock music and your hard rock image and everything like that. But I read that uh, back in your high school days, you were in a band and you played sax and keyboard, and it was kind of prog music covers, Genesis and Pink Floyd. So in your formative years, is that the kind of music you were into? Is that what kind of informed your music taste and choice? that kind of thing? Um, no, I, I don't think I was heavily influenced by Prague, but I am from Canada and I was a Rush fan. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> I, I think I'm like the one girl that loves them. <laughs> so, <laughs> Because when you go to a Rush show, it's like all men. <laughs> so, but, um, you know, my original high school band, we were, um, you know, yeah, we were listening to, you know, Rush 2112. We covered Don't Laugh. We covered Xanadu. Do you remember that song? <laughs> yes. yes that's, about as, that's about as proggy as you can get. We did. Yeah, we did Genesis and we did Pink Floyd. And uh, so we were. Yeah. You know, I think the reason we. Um, liked some of that music and don't get me wrong, like we covered Ted Nugent and. Fleetwood Mac and Hart and Led Zeppelin and lots of stuff that wasn't prog as well. And Janis Joplin, right? So we did a lot of, um, I would say, blues rock as well. But um, I think we were, you know, we were, you know, what high school kids are like. They're like, you know, oh, like we, 
we wanted to show off our musical prowess, right? So we were like, yeah, we can do this. I, you know, I played keyboards, I played saxophone. So for us, I think with the prog, it was about showing off that we were actually good players. Well, you talk about being great musicians then, the saxophone, the keyboard, you obviously play guitar and things like that. I mean, was, was music a really big thing in your life when you were younger? Um, not not in the way that you might not in the way that like my parents weren't musicians okay. although i have to say my mother was a a beautiful singer and was involved <laughs> i mean she was a product of her upbringing she didn't really have any grand musical influences she grew up with you know quite a poor family but she loved music and um and my grandpa was a fiddle player and so she kind of grew up with a lot of country and western and folk music and then when she, when I was a kid, she sang in church choirs and she had a beautiful soprano voice and she was in, asked to do lots of solos when she was in, in choir and things like that. So I, I grew up in a household where my mother was always singing, mm-hmm. but when I was about 13 or 14, my parents both worked at a college called Humber College. And at one point in time in the 70s, bad idea but they decided they were going to eradicate their vinyl library and make the big switch to eight track (laughs) (laughs) now we know how long that lasted right but (laughs) so but eight track was the big thing right I, i was yeah and so one day i guess my dad when he was finishing work he's like hey what are you guys doing with all this vinyl it was sitting in the hallway so he piled it into the trunk of his car and he came home and i was just like Wow. I had I had like a little Victrola turntable downstairs and <clears throat> in that trunk full of records was Fleetwood Mac, Led Zeppelin, The Straubs, David Bowie, The Runaways. And wow. I mean, amongst many, many, many. Oh, Steely Dan, you know. Um, and so all of a sudden it was like from going not go, having almost, ze- you know, zero good musical influences all of a sudden I had all these albums and I was like whoa it was Eureka I I discovered all this stuff and of course you know in that pile was Heart, Dreamboat Annie and Little Queen and I think probably more than any other albums when I was a young teenager I was like I fell in love with Heart I was like I want to be like those girls they play their instruments they write their songs they're in a band with guys but they're just as good as the guys musically and in every other way and they didn't trade on their sexuality to you know and, and and I was very attracted to that of course I ended up in a very different situation when I became um when I was a young artist being managed by my first manager I was sort of battling against that but um, I I really really um was influenced by them heavily Wonderful. And then we pushed on to your first couple of albums, The Aaron Project, but then the first one that kind of went big and, and broke for you was Metal Queen, wasn't it, in 1984? And then that name has kind of stuck with you ever since, hasn't it? Yeah, it's sort of like a blessing and a, <laughs> and a, and a curse. It's sort of an alb- bit of an albatross as well as a... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I went through a period in my career where I was very anti-Metal Queen. I didn't even really want to play the song. and I, But I'll tell you the reason why is because... Um, in terms of public perception of me and who I was as, a, as an artist, mm-hmm. um, I think the uber rock fans that really, really got it saw that video and that image as a um, what it was des- was initially meant to be, which was a symbol of female empowerment, a symbol of 
good triumphing over evil. So again, for the Uber fans, I think that they, they got it, right? But for um, a lot of the other public, you know, Metal Queen, you know, it, the, the perception was just that I was this, you know, hard rocking chick, that that was the lifestyle I was leading, that, you know, mm. I was all about, you know, swords and loincloths and metal and bikers and, <laughs> you know, and it, my actual life couldn't really have been further from the truth. You know, I was a very serious musician. I um, wrote my own songs. Yep. I was involved in the production of most of my records. In fact, I've produced every one of my own albums since the year 2000. Yep. And um, I was very, uh, I was just upset with the sort of public perception baggage that went with that image. And uh, I was trying to distance myself from it. You know, nowadays, I'd like to think that, you know, the world has come full circle and, you know, there's... <clears throat> That, that doesn't exist anymore, but, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I've been encouraged to wear the crown with pride. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and so you should. And you talk there, I mean, that's something that I, I really do like. You, you're a proper musician, you're a proper songwriter. You, you, your credits are all over the albums, you're involved in everything like that. You're not just a puppet who was given songs to sing and pushed on a stage and given a wardrobe or anything like that. And that's what's really, that's the, the, the reason I really like your music and, and everything you've been involved with. So that's always been a standout for me. But just touching on, on that first album, Metal Queen, that broke big. Um, when you're in the, the studio recording, obviously it was your second album, so you've been there, you've done that sort of thing but when you were writing it and when you were laying down the tracks did you have a feeling that this was going to be something that was going to catch on this was going to be the one that was going to send you big um i don't know that i ever thought that or knew that i, I mean i'm always excited about my latest recording i always feel that the most recent things that i've done are the best things that i've done i think a lot of artists uh feel that way um i i think that when yeah you know when we wrote that album and we had um, some of the singles from that album, Shake It Up, I'm just trying to think, Lady of the Darkest Night, Metal Queen. You know, we were hearing those songs back in the studio. I think we, we knew we had something special that wasn't like anything that any of the other women were doing at the time, right? But um, did we expect it to break in the way that it did? I, I, no, I don't think so. But the timing was good for us because it was right at the inception Mm -hmm. of MTV and much music. Yep. And we had done this video that had obviously fire and brimstone and very strong images. And um, <laughs> it was it was just good timing because if you were doing something visual, you know, it was um, a good time in music industry hist history to be doing that because it was just at the beginning of people creating visuals to go along with the music, if you remember, yeah. at that time in the early 80s. So, yeah, we put the video out and instantly it was on heavy rotation on much music. Absolutely. And um, I've just got a quick question from one of my listeners, if you don't mind. It's Stephen Thomas from Tidmarsh in West Berkshire. He said that he saw you at the Reading Festival in 1983. It was the first time he'd heard of, of you and Lee Aaron and he followed you ever since. And he just wants to know, what do you remember about playing that festival over in the UK? Do you remember it? <laughs> I do uh, very, very well, because it was the biggest festival I'd ever played at that point in my life. Uh -huh. I was 21 years old, and um, we had scraped together the money to come over. I mean, we, were, we weren't big in Canada yet. I was playing nightclubs six nights a week across Canada. I'd been touring for a couple of years at that point. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but um, you got to remember, especially in Canada they weren't ready for someone like me yet, right? Um, there weren't any women 
in Canada doing hard rock music. So it wasn't like I was getting a ton of radio play. Um, I was basically touring my butt off over here. We got invited to come over, but we were scraping together pennies, borrowing money from our parents to come over. We slept on Paul Suter's floor. Paul Suter was one of the lead writers at Kerrang! magazine at the time. Um, Like we literally slept on his couch and his floor because we didn't have enough money for a hotel. So, um, but yeah, the festival, it was so much excitement, but also a lot of pressure because we knew we were being filmed. My manager had managed to orchestrate a film crew to film us. And it was the biggest audience. I think there were like 50 or 60,000 people there. And for the first few songs, we were dodging giant two liter beer bottles that were flying <laughs> on stage. So it was, was quite harrowing, but um, yeah, it was, it was amazing. You know, I loved it. So, um, over the next, um, I don't know, 12 years or so, 10 years or so, you were very prolific in terms of albums and touring and things like that. You had seven albums out, and that included ones that chatted really well in Europe, like 87's Lee Aaron, and then the big one in 89, Body Rock. That was that was huge as well yeah. over here in Europe. Um, that went double platinum, I think, as well, didn't it, in Canada? It was, it was absolutely huge. But you went on a merciless tour, didn't you? Was it something like 14 months? It was over a year, wasn't it, that you, you were touring and you were on the <laughs> face of all these magazines, you are on the front cover and you are all these TV shows. I mean, it must have been great seeing it go big, but it must have been difficult in terms of um, emotionally dealing with all this and, and the hard work and everything. Well, I think on some level emotionally I was ready for it because unlike some artists that just end up with a massive hit on their first record. I paid my dues at that point. I had been on the road for nine years. I'd been on the road since 1980. I graduated that year and met my first manager that year when I was 17 years old and he put us out on the road right away. So I've been touring for nine, like literally nine years and it was my fifth album. And I'd also worked with some of the world's biggest producers. I'd worked with Bob Ezrin, who we all know what he has done, and Peter Coleman, who was Pat Benatar's producer. Um, So I'd worked with a lot of big people. You know, the thing about touring like that, it's not as glamorous as people think. It's, It's one thing, you know, if you're the Rolling Stones or you too, and you can play for two nights and take a night off and stay in a beautiful hotel in downtown Paris, <laughs> you know. But it's another thing when you're kind of like still working your way to the top, right? And so we were riding the cusp of that success and they were like, okay, well, it broke in Canada, so now we got to break it in Europe, so we need to put you over on tour over there. So <clears throat> we were, I mean, it's funny because I had a conversation with John Albany a couple of nights, a, a couple of weeks ago, who was my co-writer for 12 years and um, musical partner for many, many years, obviously. And uh, he said, yeah, he said, I just remember them putting us on a bus <laughs> and 14 months later dropping us off at home, right? It was, it was a grind and you know, you start not liking your hit songs. You're like, oh my gosh, it's like the magic is kind of gone when you've, when you've had to play it like 350 <laughs> times, right? Consecutively night after night. Um, but, you know, but, but we did it, you know, and that's, that's rock and roll. And, uh, you know, I managed to get through those tours and, you know, this is back in the days when there were no in-ear monitors or anything. And you were, you know, I was like trying to get enough sleep and trying babying my voice. You know, it was, through, uh, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, it's not as glamorous as people think, you know, and quite often you're getting on a bus and you're not, you're not getting done your show and you're done your show. 
you know, you've got your green room and you're, you know, you're up for at least another couple hours doing meet and greets with industry people and fans that have won radio station contests and various other things. And then quite often you're not even, you're not going back to a hotel. You're showering in a, an arena shower, coming back on the bus. I used to, I claimed the back lounge after a while because I got sick of sleeping in a little bunk. And you're driving like six or eight hours to your next destination. And you're you're trying to sleep on a bumpy bus that's going through, you know, mountains or terrain. And and then, you know, I'm like, they're like, okay, you know, at 11 a.m. tomorrow, you, you're at the radio station in Hamburg and you're doing this. And you're like, yeah, it, it, it again, it's it's not as glamorous as people think. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, in terms of, we, we've spoken about success in Canada and across Europe and things like that. What what was the reason you, you didn't break through in the United States then? Because you had the music, you had the songs, you had the image, you had you seemed to have everything, but for some reason you didn't break through. What was the reason behind that? You know, you're one of the few people that has asked me that question. Um, <clears throat> and what I can tell you is record company politics. A lot of people don't understand sort of that side of the business. But um, what had happened was when I was, I'm just trying to think of what age I might've been. It was on Metal Queen, so 20. When I was 20, I entered into my agreement with Attic Records in Canada. Now, Attic was one of the biggest, it was the biggest, most successful independent label in Canada. And I liked the idea of that label at the time because they had a giant uh, distributor um, they were partnered with A&M for many years. And so they worked closely with the A&M team, but they were very artist oriented. And the nice thing about that is you get a lot of focus when you're on a, a large independent, as opposed to being on a major where um, it, it's very easy to get lost in the, the lower echelons of the business, because if something starts to break big on a major, that's what they only focus, focus on, on yeah. right? And you can get lost in the you know, the shuffle. So I was, you know, very happy to be in my deal with Attic Records, but I had signed, I was 20 and I didn't really know what I was doing. I signed my worldwide rights away to them. So, which meant that if I were to sign to an American label, Attic had to sign me to the label, not me. Ah. I couldn't sign directly. So on my call of the wild, we were in negotiations with Atlantic out of New York for, no, the self-titled, my fourth album, Lee Aaron. Sorry, I'm just trying to remember some of the details here. <laughs> okay. And um, we were in negotiations out of New York, but I was on Virgin in Europe as well on that album. I remember them, they were trying to work it all out. So the deal was I was going to be signed on Atlantic out of New York, Virgin in Europe, Attic in Canada. And the lawyers came back and they said, the problem with that is everybody wanted such a huge piece of the pie. What I was left with as an artist was technically illegal. They said, they, we can't do this deal because she could go take you guys back to court because you can't give an artist that small piece of the pie. But that's kind of how 1980s record deals were designed. Um, so that deal fell apart, the Atlantic deal. On Body Rock, which was my biggest selling album in Canada, my manager was hounding them to uh, let me go independently and signed because we had various major labels interested on Body Rock. Understandable. But again, I was locked into my Attic deal and Attic wanted to start Attic America. So they wanted a label deal for their all of their artists. Yeah. 
And they wouldn't let me go because they realized that I was a very important part of that artist deal package because I was one of the biggest selling artists on the label. So that ended up falling apart. And then on Some Girls Do, which went platinum in Canada, Attic, the, the, the head of Attic wanted to start Attic America and was looking for investment funds to launch Attic America. And for whatever reason, that didn't happen either. And in the meantime, I was, I was locked mm-hmm. up. And I couldn't sign to an American label. So there you have your answer. Frankie, it just seems such a shame because you, you were tailor-made for the United States audience, especially when you talk about the MTV generation and things like that. And you, your videos are fantastic. Like I said, your music's fantastic. The voice, the image, everything was brilliant. It just seems such, such a shame. Well, it's interesting that you say that because uh, this past Christmas, the band and I did an independent Christmas album just for fun because it was COVID and we, we wanted a project and something to do. And we... We didn't have time to seek out proper distribution, so we just promoted it on our social media, and it sold actually incredibly well, which I was, again, a blessing and a curse, because I was doing fulfillment from my home. I was, like, stuffing these envelopes every single day and going to the post office. It was crazy. But I would say 50%, almost of my orders came from the States, so... I know I have fans there <laughs> that have bought my album, you know, as an import, but yeah. Just one of them things, so, just one of them things. And another one of them things was was the change yeah. of the music scene. You obviously had a huge success in the 80s and then the 90s came around. And as with many other acts, grunge came and kind of changed the, the landscape, didn't it, of music? And, and you did evolve slightly. You had a fantastic album that came out, Emotional Rain, but it, it just didn't really have that traction that, that your 80s stuff did, did it? for obvious reasons, um, you know, grunt, the, you know, there's been several movements in the history of music that have changed the entire landscape. There yeah. was punk, there was disco, and then grunge came along and every artist that had a career in either hard, you know, well, I hate to say the word hair metal, but I think for a lot of people, I got lumped <laughs> into that category. I like to think of what I was doing as more classic rock melodic rock but i was lumped into that category of and that era of music so when grunge came along again this is all industry perception and media perception they just it didn't matter what i did at that point they had no interest in um promoting and getting on board with it which was it was really hard for me because i at that that time i was i was still in my 20s i think i was 28 or 29 and i actually loved grunge i thought wow you know, because let's be honest, corporate rock was getting pretty, pretty crappy at that point. You know, it was largely becoming record company men manufactured music and it was had lost its mm-hmm. there were, you know, there were no guns and roses coming along at that point anymore, you know, making seminal albums like that. So I I I loved Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and Nirvana and Green Day and all of the I know it's like I just embraced it as another style of rock that I could sort of, you know, incorporate into my own sound. Um, And so I brought Reeves Gabrels from David Bowie's Tin Machine up and uh, Rock Knock Chandler from the Psychedelic Furs, the rhythm section from a Canadian band called Sons of Freedom. And I I, I made Emotional Rain, which was a, you know, it definitely sounded like a Lee Aaron album. It was melodic, it was rock, but it had definitely a grunge edge to it. Um, I, I'm proud of that album. I think I did some of my best writing. And then I went and did another album. I moved to Vancouver and did an, an album called Too Precious with the members of Sons of Freedom, which again was incorporating more of that kind of grungy sound. 
but you know, I just couldn't get any traction because the industry wasn't interested. It was, you start learning after you've been in the music business for quite a, I mean, I've, I've been doing this now for close to 40 years and um, since I was a teenager and uh, it's cyclical, it trends come and go. And a lot of it has to do with where the industry is at, you know, Um, at this stage and this, you know, age of that I'm at and where I'm at in my career, I feel like I'm starting to get a lot more respect because people go, wow, just simply the fact that I've been around this long and I continue to make new music and I've uh, produced my own records and I've had this much longevity, you know, you kind of finally earn the coattails of respect, which is nice, but it was, (laughs) it was really a battle for many, many years. I mean, the girls in heart will tell you that as well, right? It's, we came up in an era where you had to scratch your way (laughs) to the top for respect because it was a very male-dominated industry. And if you were a woman that looked half decent, like Anna Nancy Wilson or like myself, you know, um, there were you were battling against being marketed as a pinup girl because that's what the rec- how the record companies saw you. And in one way, that's great because you're going to get the cover of a magazine, yay. But in the other way, it's a curse because many people don't take you seriously as a musician because they think you're just this pretty face that sings, right? And it's, uh, yeah. So. (laughs) It's one of them. (laughs) Um, So we've touched on many different genres there from high school prog and everything else. But another thing I want to talk to you about is is jazz. Is that something you you tried because you love jazz or is it just something different? Or what was that? That was about maybe 10 years ago or so, wasn't it? That You you really got involved heavily in jazz and you, you had really good success with it in terms of headlining festivals and things like that too, didn't you? Well, I had to go bankrupt in 1996 because the music industry had changed so much. My manager at the time, I think I had moved to the West Coast and we were we're staying in communication. But I think he realized that not only me, but various other acts that he managed were struggling to keep their career afloat at that time as well. And he got offered a job as the foreign licensing rep for Koch America. And he just jumped at the opportunity and went... I'm not going to be a manager anymore. And I just showed up one day in Vancouver and there was all my, my, my financial stuff was in banker boxes on my doorstep. And I was like, Oh man, I'm like in $487,000 worth of debt here. What do I do? So in 19, in 1996, I had to go bankrupt. Um, I managed to recover from that, but it really seriously was the best thing I could have ever done. And I've, I've talked about this a few times in interviews was that, you know, I could have spent the next decade of my career climbing out of the black hole of debt and um that's not particularly motivating to write songs as an artist right (laughs) you know so it was really the best thing i could have done because i got to start anew fresh yeah and when i i went about a year without doing any live shows or singing and when i decided i was going to sing again i just really had no interest in jumping back on the pop culture bandwagon so i had been licking my wounds for a year, listening to my old Nina Simone and Billie Holiday records and Etta James albums. And, you know, I'd always loved that style of music. And I, when I was a youngster, before I ended up in a rock band, I was heavily involved in musical theater throughout school. I was very well-versed in old Tin Pan Alley, the old Tin Pan Alley writers, Broadway musicals and jazz and blues. I grew up listening to a lot of that stuff 
in my later high school years. So it felt like a natural transition. And um, I just started singing jazz and blues in some small clubs in the Vancouver area where I lived. And the next thing you knew, they were people heard about it. I was on that a feature in the sun and then people were more and more people were coming to see me. And then there was sort of like, when are you going to make an album of this music? We love it. And then I made an album, produced an album, Slick Chick in 2000 and got distribution out of Montreal. And then the next thing it was, I was getting all these offers to play jazz festivals. And so I didn't really jump into that thinking that I was going to have any kind of success. And you certainly don't do jazz for money, let me tell you. <laughs> um, but uh, I think people saw that it was, my motivation was authentic. And I think, um, again, most of my reviews were, were quite positive because it wasn't like I was just going, oh, let's jump on a jazz bandwagon. It was an authentic form of music for me. And I, I did it with full throttle with my heart and soul. And I think people enjoyed it. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> and did you pick up um, lots of different fans then from that kind of period? Because obviously you had your, your your army of of fans from your earlier music, and then did you pick, did you almost become two differently, Aaron? Uh, yes and no. Um, a lot of people that had, were not familiar with my rock music became fans of my jazz, and then went and found my rock. But then a lot of people that were rock fans, I would have this interesting experience. I would go say be showcasing in a nightclub in Vancouver. And because I stayed local for a while, because I actually at that time, I was my husband and I were also trying to have children and I didn't really want to be touring. So I, you know, I'd be playing in a club and uh, I would get like some burly biker types that would come in and, <laughs> you know, a gaggle. And after, you know, three songs, they'd be like, what's going on? And they would like, <laughs> get up, they'd be mad, they'd be pissed off and they'd get up and they would leave. And I'd go, OK, well. That didn't work well. And then I'd get another table of similar types that would be sitting and they'd be, you know, kind of head scratching going, hmm, I don't get it. And then by the end of the night, they'd be like, you know, just freaking out. And so I like to think I was a bit of a gateway artist, you know, that and many, many of my rock fans have told me that, that they didn't listen to jazz until I sang it. Yeah. And then they realized that it was actually a fabulous music form and they loved it. So there you go. Oh, good stuff. And, and just to kind of finish off then, obviously you, you mentioned the Christmas album that you did recently. Um, what's on the horizon then for, for Leah? Are you, are you recording new music or are you just taking time to chill? Or uh, Obviously you mentioned you've got a young family, so is, is that what you're doing now or have you got your sights on a new album? I just finished mixing um, a new album for 2021. It's coming out in the late spring of this year. I just finished mixing it with Mike Fraser. He just mixed, mixed the new ACDC album. Oh. Ah, well, there you go. So he's, he only works for the best then. Yeah, he's an incredible talent. I was so thrilled to be able to work with him. Um, and we have him out on the horizon to make the new Learen album. So so that album is finished. I have an album. Um, and we're just in the process of uh, signing a deal. And it it's slated for late spring. I think we're looking at early uh, late June or early May. And um and I've been right. We're writing songs for a 2022 album right now. Uh, we, you know, what else are we going to do right now? <laughs> right? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm writing. Keep them busy. I'm, and I'm working on um, uh, memoirs as well. So there's a book on the horizon at some point. Is hopefully in the not too distant future fantastic well it's good to see you keeping busy well it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you uh, lee um we wish you all the best with your new music and we look forward to it for the memoir to come out as well i'm look, very much looking forward to that and thank you for joining us on vintage rock pod yay 
Hey, nice talking to you. Bye-bye, Scotland. (laughs) A fantastic interview with a great singer. Really interesting as well to hear about the business side of it all too. You'd think that someone with her music and ability and voice and her looks and image, especially for that kind of MTV generation early days, she would have been a surefire hit in the US, but record label issues meant she was never even allowed a chance. It's pretty crazy, really, isn't it? Um, I was looking at my stats and stuff for the podcast, and we've now been listened to in 61 countries around the world, the split being 49% UK, 25% US, and the remaining 26% everywhere else. So with that in mind, if you're not massively familiar with Lee's back catalogue, here's my personal top five Lee Aaron songs to get you going. At five is a track from her breakthrough album, Metal Queen, from 1984. It's a big, memorable chorus, like many of her songs. At number five is Lady of the Darkest Night. At number four is the opening track on her 1987 self-titled album. Co-writing credit goes to former guest on the show, Rainbow frontman Joe Lynn Turner 2. It's another big song which showcases her vocals brilliantly. At number four is Powerline. At three is a song from the 1989 Body Rock album. Again, another massive sing-along chorus that rocks along throughout. The track at number three is Rock the Hard Way. At number two is a track from her latest rock album, the title track in effect. Again, it's ballsy and big and showcases her magnificent voice It's still there. She's walking away with a smile on her face. At number two is Diamond Baby. And the number one song is what she says herself was a blessing and a curse. It may be the obvious choice, but it's brilliant and it still sounds great today. It should certainly be on any 80s rock playlist. The number one Lee Aaron song, according to Vintage Rock Pod, is Metal Queen. And as always, well worth going back and listening to those albums in full. I'm sure there'll be people who disagree with that list as well. It's my personal choice, remember. But if you do have any thoughts, then please do get in touch. We're on all the social media platforms. Give us a like and a follow. Let me know your thoughts on that. I'd love to hear from you. Also, take a watch of some of Lee Aaron's live performances on YouTubes and the likes as well. Seriously good live shows as well. Right, time to get those brain cells fired up now with some teasing questions in this week's Vintage Rock Pod Quiz. And it's time for this week's quiz. And because we've had Lee Aaron on the show, and she's a fantastic Canadian singer, the quiz is going to be about Canadian rock. Now, who else could I get to take part in a quiz about Canadian rock than the man himself, editor-in-chief of Canadian Musician Magazine and Canadian Musician Podcast 2. Welcome to Vintage Rock Pod, Mike Rain. Thank you, thank you. And uh, that auspicious introduction, I'm hoping I don't uh, embarrass myself here. <laughs> I'm sure you won't, a man of your talents. Although you have already put the, 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 the gauntlet down by saying that you're, you're more used to kind of post-2000s rock, so that's just a little a dampener just in case. You've, you've I, got your excuses in early. I am a, <laughs> I am a big uh, classic rock fan in general, but uh, Canadians would know Canadian rock history, especially in the 70s, 80s, is full of these, like, <laughs> you had to be there to remember them type uh, rock bands. So uh, we'll see how hard you make this. (laughs) It shouldn't be too hard at all. Just a quick recap on usual quiz rules. You've got 15 uh, questions within three minutes. If you don't know an answer, just say pass and we can come back to it if we've got time at the end. Does that all make sense for you, Mike? Yep, sounds good. Excellent. Let's crack on with it then. Let's hit start. Here we go. Question one. Which group from Winnipeg, Manitoba had a worldwide smash hit in 1974 with the song You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet? That is BTO. Bachman Turner Overdrive. Which influential group, which were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1994, famously toured as Bob Dylan's first electric band in the mid-60s? That is the band. Question three. In 1970, which band became the first Canadian group to have a number one single in America with the song American Woman? 
That is the precursor to the BT- to BTO, the Guess Who. Uh, question four. Which legendary artist born in Toronto released the hit solo albums After the Gold Rush and Harvest? That is the great Neil Young. Which Ottawa born star shot to fame with the album Jagged Little Pill? That would be Alanis Morissette. Question six. Which group that contained three Canadians had worldwide hits with the songs Rock Me and Magic Carpet Ride? Oh, uh, Steppenwolf. Question seven. Working for the weekend and Turn Me Loose were huge hits for which 80s rock group? Oh, 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 I should know this. I know the songs. Who is it? It's, uh, uh, is it Loverboy or Trooper? Loverboy, I'll say. I'll take Loverboy as your first answer. Uh, question eight. Which legendary singer-songwriter was originally born Roberta Anderson? Oh, was originally born Roberta Anderson. I'll pass. On that one. Uh, recorded and released by many other artists, the song Hallelujah was originally written by which Canadian singer, songwriter, poet, novelist, everything else? Maybe the second greatest songwriter of all time after Dylan, Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen, question 10. Which group fronted by Bill Henderson from Vancouver had the hit My Girl Gone 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 in 1981? Uh, say, say it again. Uh, My Girl Gone 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 was a hit for which band in 1981? Uh, Trooper? I can't remember. I'm really bad at 80s rock. (laughs) Question 11. The worldwide hit Echo Beach, which won the Juno Award for Single of the Year in 1980, was by which band? Uh, Martha and the Muffins. Question 12. Which Canadian bass player played with Hole from 94 to 99 and then briefly with Smashing Pumpkins? Oh, um, Melissa Oftimar. Which famous music producer worked on albums from Alice Cooper, Kiss, Deep Purple, and famously The Wall by uh, Pink Floyd? Uh, That is our friend Bob Ezrin. Bob Ezrin, question 14. Geddy Lee, Alex Lifeson, and Neil Peart made up which group? Rush, of course. Of course. And question 15. What was the name of Brian Adams' 1984 album that contained the hit singles Summer of 69 and Run to You? Um, Oh, my God. I should know this. Um... Got five seconds. I, 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 I'm totally drawing a blank on the album. <laughs> and the other question oh, we I passed saw, on. Oh, Reckless? No. Whatever. Reckless, we'll take oh, that. Man, and the other question was, oh, time's up. Time is <laughs> up. So close. Right, let's have a quick run through and see how you got on with this one. Right, so question one. The group from uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, had the big hit with the Ain't Nothing Yet, of course, was Backman Turner Overdrive. The influential group, which was the first band to tour with an electric stuff with Bob Dylan, was the band. Um, the first group to have an American number one single was the Guess Who, correct, again? Uh, the legendary artist, of course, with the albums after the Gold Rush and Harvest was Neil Young. Um, the star that shot to fame with the album Jagged Little Pill was Alanis Morissette. Uh, the group that had uh, big hits with Rock Me and Magic Carpet Ride was Steppenwolf. I left off Born to Be Wild because I thought I'd make it a bit too easy. <laughs> um, working for the weekend and Turn Me Loose were huge hits. You said Loverboy. It was Loverboy. Well done. You got there in the oh, end. Okay. Um, the legendary singer-songwriter originally born Roberta Anderson was yeah, who's this? Joni Mitchell. Oh, shit. Yes, her middle name was Joan. So there you go. Huh, did not know that. I know she had a different maiden name. I didn't know she had a different uh, first name. Yeah. Well, you learn something new every day. Um, Hallelujah was, of course, uh, Leonard Cohen. You got that correct. Um, the group fronted by Bill Henderson from Vancouver that had the hit with My Girl Gone 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 in 1981 was Chilliwack. He said Trooper. Ah, uh, I forgot about them. 
Echo Beach was by Martha and the Muffins, again correct. Melissa Alfdemur, that was another one correct. She played with Hole and briefly with Smashing Pumpkins. Um, the famous music producer who's worked with pretty much everybody and was behind the wall was Bob Ezrin, of course. Uh, Geddy Lee, Alex Lifeson and Neil Pert, of course, is Rush. I think that's uh, everyone in Canada can answer that one correct. And right at the death, you just <laughs> managed to get the you answer You get kicked to- out if you don't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Brian Adams' 1984 album, which contained the hit single Summer of 69, and Run To You was, of course, Reckless. You got that correct as well. So 13 out of 15. That's really good, Mike. Well okay. done. So no, I think that puts you joint top of the leaderboard with 13 out of 15. So right, well done. All right, nice. I was up late last night worrying about this, getting caught up on my uh, Canadian music history. Well, it's clearly worked because you've scored a great <laughs> score. So so tell us a bit more about your, um, your role then, because you're editor-in-chief with Canadian Music Magazine and um, again with a podcast too. So tell us a bit about all those. Yeah, for Canadian Musician Magazine, uh, been around the, the publishing company I work for. So there's four magazines, Canadian Musician Magazine is the most prominent of them here. Uh, they're all, um, I guess, entertainment industry related. Canadian Musician Magazine been around since 79. And uh, you can kind of think about it, it. It's sort of a trade magazine for musicians and for the music industry here in Canada. You can kind of think of it as a cross between something like uh, premier guitar and billboard sort of thing except targeted all musicians we do you know focus on the craft of making music and recording and songwriting and that stuff but we also dig into a lot of industry topics in terms of royalties and rights and that kind of stuff yeah. so uh, the, the idea is to be just of assistance as best we can to informing and helping and inspiring musicians to uh, create a you know sustainable lasting career in music mm-hmm. as well as managers agents label people you know, people across the industry um the podcast just an offshoot of that maybe become my favorite part of the job um you know you may know with the uh, podcasting I, I like the fact that you get to have very timely conversations there's no real time limit you don't have the space constraints of mm-hmm. uh, of writing and um you know you can get, just kind of just have a bit more free-flowing interesting conversation so yeah canadian musician podcast um new episodes come out every wednesday so yeah, the the other magazines uh, I work on professional sound for the audio industry, uh, Canadian music uh, Canadian music trade for the audio or music products industry, and uh, professional lighting production for that wow. side of things. But uh, yeah, we have a, a lot going on with not many people at this company. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like a busy guy. So I thank you very much for taking uh, time out of your day to, to take part in this quiz for us here on Vintage Rock Pod. It's very much appreciated, Mike. Absolutely. It was fun. Thanks for having me. And a big, big thank you to Mike Rain for joining us there. And that's it for episode 17 then. As always, I really do appreciate your support. I still find it crazy that I've had listeners from 61 countries now. It is pretty bonkers. But please subscribe and follow the podcast on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. Leave me a nice five-star rating too, a little review, all that kind of stuff helps with the ranking and visibility. And to be honest, it's free. It's not going to cost you anything. Go give us a like or a follow on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube with some of the interviews, quizzes and top five lists going up there for you to see as well and don't forget sign up to be a vrp vip at vintagerockpod.com plenty on that website for you to see as well tell your friends family neighbors colleagues anyone really to get listening and join in the family until episode 18 then remember if you come across anyone who isn't a fan just tell them my music is better than yours take care It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.